فمبادئ السنة السماعي سماعي زن أوتمان ريدم there was no سماعي ريدم in Andalusia and they have documents about rhythm in Andalusia we don't have the music but we have documents Welcome to Baladance Live podcast with weekly portion of stories, tips and dance inspiration. My name is Jana Komarnitska, I'm your host and I invite you to explore all nuances of Baladance Live together with me and our amazing guests. Let's start! Hello, 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 guys! I'm so excited to start this podcast with a super cool announcement. And some of you may already know it, but our podcast, the Belladance Life podcast, officially started appearing on Apple charts. That's so huge! I couldn't believe uh, that I received the email notification. I, I literally had to pinch myself. Just to give you entire idea of this uh, situation, there are over, I don't know, like 200-300,000 podcasts out in the world. And seeing our podcast started appearing in the ranking of official Apple charts in the performing arts category, it's absolutely amazing. And I just want to thank you, all of you, for your downloads, for you listening to our podcast, for all your ratings and reviews, because that's that's what made a difference. You may think, oh, what can just like one review or rating uh, make? But actually it does. And uh, once I get access to Apple Charts, I actually got access to all your reviews and ratings because I guess uh, until the podcast is uh, officially ranked, there may be some glitches. So not all of them were appearing on the um, mobile app. So I didn't see them. And now I see all of them since very beginning and thank you so much that just it just made my day that I saw that email and sent, saw all your reviews and I was just to want to read a couple of them because it's it means so much and uh, thank you once again for all your feedback and for all your kind words and I'm so happy to hear that uh, podcast uh, serves good <laughs> for you in terms of for some education and some entertainment but just a couple of reviews uh, that really made my day uh, that then I read them was one comes from Spain. Thoughtful and inspirational conversations with top world ballet dancers. Jana, you make each and every conversation intimate, professional and insightful. Thank you for your work and opportunity to learn from the best. Highly recommend to ballet dancers of all the levels. It might change your life. Thank you so much. Another comes from Great Britain. What a lovely podcast, getting to really understand the life of top international ballet dancers. For anyone thinking of going pro or wanting tips on pretty much any aspect of ballet dance life, this is an amazing resource. Thanks, Anna, and please keep going. Yes, I will definitely will. <laughs> Another comes from USA. Thank you, Anna, for your dedication and great effort. I really enjoyed listening to this episode to gain insights and learn tips. Thank you so much. A great and informative podcast. It's good to hear what my favorite dancers have to say about their careers and their approach to ballet dance, uh, says Norm from Canada. Thank you. Yes, I absolutely agree. 
It's been so cool to hear the voices and stories of dancers whom I've only seen videos and photos of. As a student, I am learning so much from each episode that Jana puts out and the insights she brings out from other dancers. Thank you so much and keep up the great work. Postscriptum. This is my first podcast review ever, so I hope that says something about how much I enjoyed. Oh my god, thank you so much. <laughs> yes, I know. I uh, honestly, I left reviews to the podcast that I listen to only then I started my own and I was like, okay, if I want uh, reviews from uh, our listeners, I need to be a good listener too and first uh, give appreciation to the podcast that I'm listening to and they give me some uh, useful things. So yeah, I understand we sometimes take longer and don't think that reviews are important or we think they take so much time to, to log and post something. So. I understand that procrastination with leaving reviews. So thank you so much for breaking it and actually leaving your first review specifically for the Balladance Live podcast. I really appreciate it. One more from USA. I really love listening to this podcast. It's a wonderful way to know firsthand about what is going on actually in the ballet dance scene and most importantly hearing the experiences of wonderful artists like Jana herself and the guests she has on every episode. I'm sure going to be listening to every future episode and sharing them with my friend and dance partners who I know will love it. Postscriptum. I personally think this is a great source of inspiration and knowledge of for young dancers and myself as myself. Thank you, Jana. I'm so happy it, it helps uh, and, and inspires. Thank you so much for leaving review. This is an awesome Balladance podcast with thought-provoking interviews and an other awareness. Jana does a terrific job. Can't wait for more. Thank you so much. I hope my future ideas about podcasts will inspire you even more. This podcast is a dream come true for every belly dancer. Amazing quality and relevant content, incredible guest speakers and phenomenal interviewing skills by Jana. I'm so excited about this project. Oh my God, thank you so much. I was, to be honest, when I just started, I was so nervous about my interviewing skills because like I've never done and I'm not really extroverted person who likes talking. I'm actually in, in life quite opposite. Uh, so thank you so much for giving a token of uh, <laughs> encouragement for me there as, a, as an interviewer. Exactly what I've been waiting for. Yes, I have been waiting for a great balance podcast forever. This podcast is very informative with well-known dancers. I listened to all the episodes in about two days. Can't wait for more. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. That was probably a marathon of balladance uh, um, interviews and conversations, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Love hearing about other dancers and journeys. Learning about dance life is just as important as learning the dance. Thanks for this great podcast Jana yes I absolutely agree and thank you for leaving this beautiful review as a dancer I really enjoyed the podcast because it really takes uh, a deeper dive into what it's like to be a professional dancer and how difficult but also how rewarding it is yes I also absolutely agree and that's exactly why I created this podcast and again this is just a couple of uh, reviews uh, but I think I will need to create a whole separate interview to go back to all previous reviews but I really appreciate them all absolutely every single review and also rating that you gave to this podcast and this is uh, one of the biggest uh, 
rewards and things that I can receive as the host uh, and creator of this project. So once again, thank you so much. And now I will definitely keep an eye on all reviews and ratings. And whenever I see anything new, I will give a little shout out to you. And from whichever country uh, you are leaving the review, that's so amazing that we also have such an international uh, audience all across uh, the world. And um, once again, guys, uh, if you if you haven't left a review yet, <laughs> it takes just literally a few uh, minutes. I did it myself for other podcasts that I'm listening to, so I know there is uh, nothing complicated there, but I would always uh, uh, really appreciate if you can uh, spend a few minutes and uh, leave a rating and a review for the podcast, because as you see now, it does make a difference. And now after we appeared on official Apple podcast charts, next goal is actually to climb the charts higher in the rankings so it can reach more people and hopefully it will reach not only dancers but the general audience too and help popularize this dance form and maybe even... uh, help other people to discover this beautiful art form and engage them and grow our ballet dance community even even more even further but in any case thank you so much for everyone uh, um, leaving a review so far and uh, my apologies sorry that it took me so, so long to give a proper shout out for all of you and say proper thank you but i literally got access to those reviews and saw them uh, just just recently otherwise i would absolutely for sure give all acknowledgement uh, even earlier uh, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and now let's move on to our today's uh, interview episode and uh, we have a very special guest. I know I'm telling this about absolutely everyone, but they are, aren't they? Don't you agree? Like all our guests, they have so much to say and to share and they are special in many ways. But today's guest is special in the sense that uh, he's a musician, but not only a musician, he's also a historian historian specializing in music please welcome dr george sava i had a great pleasure to interview him in person because he's based in toronto and dancers in toronto we are here very spoiled with his presence and his work and his participation and contribution to the understanding to the balance world and understand and helping dancers to understand the essence of Egyptian music and uh, he's absolutely phenomenal he published over 50 articles on Arabic music uh, he published so many books he's the author of music performance practice in early Abbasid era 750 to 932 AD Rhythmic theories and practices in Arabic writing to 950 CE, an Arabic musical and social cultural glossary of Kitab al Akhani, the book of songs of al Isfahani, and Erotic Love of Humor in Arabia, spicy stories from the book of songs by al Isfahani. And I'm skipping here a couple of dates <laughs> just because it's uh, a bit difficult to pronounce and to um, receive them through the 
words, um, but basically to give you understanding for George Sava, probably the music of uh, 14th or 15th century is too modern. <laughs> He's really specializing in the early Egyptian uh, music going back to 10th, 9th, 11th century. He did amazing work by trying to reconstruct uh, uh, music of those times in his CDs. Uh, he received the prestigious Lifetime Achievement Award from the Egyptian Ministry of Culture for his research in Arabic music history. His, one of his CDs, uh, The Art of Early Egyptian Kanun, Volume First, was nominated for a Juno Award in World Music in 2009. And there are so many achievements and contributions that he did, and I would love to highlight here, but again, it will be probably take uh, uh, another 40 minutes just introducing this amazing uh, person amazing researcher and amazing musician. But I'm very happy we did this interview and we uh, had, we were able to highlight some of his work, which is the most related to ballet dancers. And I really hope that I will uh, interest and encourage you to dig more into his research, into his uh, uh, books and uh, his publications. By the way, he posts uh, from time to time very interesting, informative uh, mini articles on Facebook. So I also encourage you to check his social media and follow him because uh, a lot of uh, historical discoveries <laughs> that he does through translation of old books he shares very generously with dancers. Uh, in his lectures, in personal conversations, as well as via social media and specifically Facebook. So this is a little tip from me. Uh, go ahead and follow his page. And uh, now you're about to listen to the actual interview and you'll understand why I'm so excited about this episode. But before that, I also very excited to give a special quick thank you for our supporters, Balladance Evolution. Join Jelena's Balladance Evolution 10-year anniversary celebration, workshops, Hafla and best of BDE show featuring stars Sharon Kihara, Kaeshi, Kader, Jelena and more. August 20 to 25 in Los Angeles, California. Also, BDE has opened auditions for their performance in Buenos Aires, Argentina this October. Auditions close September 3rd. Visit BalladanceEvolution.com for more details. Jana, how are you? I'm awesome. Thank you so much for agreeing for this interview. It's it's such My a treat for me whenever I have a, a chance to actually sit down with someone and talk. Good, good for <laughs> so you. This is a treat to, to have you in Toronto here and having a chance to interview. And you are very active uh, in the ballet dance community as a musician, but I actually want to start with your own uh, story of uh, how did you get involved in the music? Okay. And specifically how you transitioned in the research work about music. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, my musical life started because my aunt did not get married. It sounds weird, <laughs> but it's not that weird. In the old days, in the 19th century, when you had a daughter or a sister, you 
have to prepare the dowry, the clothing, the furniture, and invariably you have to have a loot, oud, mm-hmm. as part of the dowry. It doesn't matter if you could play it or not, but it has to be part of the dowry. With Western influence, it was more fashionable and more social status to have a piano, not a lute. So my father bought a piano for his sister, Zakia. Zakia never married. She was living with us, and so did the piano. So the first thing I ever did was to learn by ear and work with Mandalao and Sak of Abdul Hab and uh, Abdul Halim. And then I did Franz Liszt from Tizia, ta, 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 la, la, all by ear. My father said, no, 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 you want to develop bad habits. You have to find your teacher. Mm-hmm. So he found this absolutely brilliant but crazy woman, Madame Irene Drakidis. She was Greek. She never went to school. She was so rich. Her father was so rich, he brought people to her house to teach her. And she studied piano with Alfred Courtois, very famous French piano educator. So I was very lucky mm-hmm. to study with her for like 13 years. She also played violin, so she did chamber music, piano and violin, Brahms, Sonata, Mozart, Beethoven. I mean, I was so spoiled. But I was also, I loved mathematics and engineering. So part of engineering is to go to Europe and work in a factory to, to gain some uh, experience. So I went to Sweden of all places. And I played piano, and then they said to me, you know, you're Egyptian. You're playing Beethoven and Liszt. You're playing Egyptian music on the piano. Why don't you play an Egyptian instrument? I said, you know, this is weird. I have to come all the way to Northern Europe to be told what to do. And I always loved the kanun from the time I was a child. I would hear the kanun around to the radio, except they would, they would use the canoe only as a filler between programs. So after 13 seconds, ding, dong, this is Cairo, and they cut the beautiful taksim. So finally, I went to the uh, conservatory of Arabic music and started canoe lessons for four years. And I was lucky that every year there was a new canoe teacher. Mm. Uh, two of them, uh, one was the student of the old Akkad, Muhammad al-Akkad, who did the early recording of Abdul Hab and Umm Kalsum. The second one was a student of Adabi and Ibrahim al-Aryan. These are very, very famous players. So I absorbed all these techniques, and maybe I learned 2% of what they knew, because there is so much to do. But I have some of the recordings I did on an old cassette, plus I found stuff online and DVD uh, CDs with the teachers of my teachers. Then there was a movement in Egypt. The reason our music is not international like Western music is because we don't have symphonies, because we don't have harmony, orchestration, counterpoint, just have voice and canoe that's so primitive. So I said, well, you know, maybe I'll try my luck and make Egyptian music international. Hmm. But having been to French schools and learned logic and discipline, I said, well, Western music and Arabic music were the same in the 10th century. It was just voice and lute. French music, French medieval, the same idea. How did they go from there to the 19th century with the big counterpoint and harmony? 
How, what's, what's, what are the steps? Maybe when I go along, I found something that made more sense for Arabic music than uh, the harmony of the 19th century. So I came to Canada and I studied the history of Western music and very rich, very beautiful. But at the end I said, you know what? Leave Arabic music as it is. Forget, <laughs> forget this counterpoint harmony because when you, you, when you use that, you lose something. Arabic music rhythms and melodies are very rich. If you put harmony counterpoint, you're going to lose some of these the beautiful melodies. For dancers who may not understand uh, music uh, terms, uh, how can we describe what is harmony and counterpoint? Like, because what is the difference between Western music and Arabic music? In this Just case? one one line of music is what called monophonic, mono, one, one line. When you put two or three lines on top of each other, it becomes polyphony or harmony, like chords on the piano. This This is harmony. It sustains the melody. So can I, for instance, describe in like uh, very simple words that, for instance, in Western music, it's usually all musicians of the orchestra, they sort of playing the same melody, they while no, in... No. Okay. They, they, each has, has his part. That's why you have to have a conductor. That's what you have to teach. So each has his own part, but they go together very beautifully. And in Arabic music? You don't have, you have only one melody, that's it. But each, each player ornaments differently. So you create a nice texture. They call it heterophonic texture. Mm-hmm. The canoe plays the melody and the violin and the lute, but everyone does it slightly different at the same time. Mm-hmm, but and it's, it's the so same melody. Same melody. Okay. Yeah. So that's what makes it different in the nature of sound between very Western much. and Arabic music, because very in Western much. it's very typical to have sort of either different parts or different yeah. melodies combining with each other. Yes. Rather in Arabic, it's usually typically like one main melody, that's but it. any everyone yeah. ornaments on its own. Different. That's very that's interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then the, the melodies are so complex. Omkalsum songs are very difficult. Uh, Sufi music is very difficult. Chanting of the Quran, uh, sacred Islamic music, even Byzantine music, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox. All these melodies are very complex. We, we don't think about it, but you write it down and say, my God, this is so rich. So if you're going to have too much harmony, you're going to lose the subtle melodies. Mm. Yeah. So your interest in research, uh, it came from trying to figure out what's the difference between Western and Arabic music in terms of its popularity in the world and yeah. how to make Arabic music more popular. Yeah. And you went back to like 10th century research of Western music. How did it transform into all your historical works today about Arabic music? <laughs> well, just remember, I'm crazy. Number one. Number two. Uh, I, I, I left Egypt to study this stuff and had that project in mind, harmonizing Arabic music and all that stuff. It was very popular at the time, but it never gained ground. It never worked. So I said, okay, that project did not work. What do I do with my life? Uh, I was a bit down in 1973 because I finished two years master. Then I said, you know what? I heard about this French translation of Al-Farabi treatise of music. 
So at the time, we did not have an Arabic edition yet. I opened the first two pages. It's like reading the Bible. I felt so calm because Farabi is a student of Aristotelian teaching, Aristotle. So they write with absolute precision, very comprehensive. And that was the changing part of my life. It was complete change. And I devoted all my energy to very early Arabic music. So instead of taking Arabic music forward to harmony counterpoint into the 20th and 21st century, I took Arabic music down to the 8th, 9th, and 10th century. Mm. And then at one point I said, well, this is good, but I also have to study Persian, Ottoman Turkish to do research on all these musics. But by the time I did my dissertation and work on Arabic music up to the 10th century, so that I need at least 200 years to exhaust this period from the 8th to the 10th century. So I said, you know, other people can do Persian music, Ottoman music. I'm going to stick to that era and maybe eventually it into the 11th century when you have this wonderful uh, material from, from Cairo, 11th century, and one from northern Iraq, and they define terms. They're, they're, they're wonderful early treatises defining terms. What was uh, the most impressive and that uh, element of thing that so much inspired you to focus on that music from those times? What was maybe you found some, I don't know, significant differences from music of uh, 10th, uh, 9th century compared to more recent, let's say, music yeah. of Egypt? What, what was the most intriguing for you? Why it inspired the, you? The, the intriguing part, the music is gone. We have lost it. Mm -hmm. And only in the 13th century, we have fragments of six songs. But the original, the original music is all gone. Because you don't write it, it's lost. There were two instances where some songs were written and they tell us how they did it, but the song themselves did not survive. Mm. Okay? But what's intriguing is the amount of intelligence used to explain music. You use phonology, phonetics, grammar, mathematics. You use Aristotle philosophy. You use... Um, the beautiful in poetry, prosody, measurement of poetry, um, uh, other things, uh, simile, uh, metaphors to explain the music. For example, when you play 10-8, at the end, they call them attacks to pass from one musical bar to the next musical bar. They call them attack of passage. Bad to pass. Mm -hmm. But also majes means passage, but also it means a metaphor. And in Greek, metaphor is transferring and transporting. Mm. So you see the amazing minds of these people. And then when they talk about forte and piano, for example, uh, Farabi would talk about the musician calling this a loud attack, complete attack, or moderate, or a sound of an attack. See, the musicians have beautiful terminology. 
Mm-hmm. But for Rabbi to explain it, he made it into the ending of words in Arabic grammar. Like un, a, and half a. Waladan, walada, walad. So he's combining Arabic grammar to explain music. Mm-hmm. It's so brilliant. This is one part. The other part is a collection, an anthology of 10,000 pages, the Grand Book of Songs by Isfahani. took him 50 years to complete. 50 years. You get 67 words about music education. Not one word, 67. How a musician learned, how a musician composed, all in storytelling. Not, not difficult to read, and um, you just get to learn so much. I also know you were mentioning that it was not only about music education, this varied uh, uh, explanation of the term, but such terms as tarab too. Tarab. This whole, my latest book, is a whole section on tarab. And in my previous book in Arabic, I have 495 entries in the glossary about tarab. 495. Most people think Tarab is just from music, but Tarab can happen when you read beautiful poetry, when you see a beautiful garden, that's Tarab, when your beloved is coming to see you, that's Tarab. All kinds. So it's very rich. And then you have a physical uh, reaction to Tarab. When you jump in the air, Slap your face out of joy. Jump into the river. These are sort of extreme reaction to Tarab. Or you can cry from Tarab. So Tarab Tarab is not just a musical term. How as dancers we typically describe Tarab as a specific kind of songs. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But Tarab is actually more referring to the emotional state, not the music term. It's it's what the music does to your emotion. And Tarab, by definition, is a very strong emotion of joy or grief. It could be positive, it could be negative. Both are Tarab. Mm. Talking about all those uh, ancient, or not like ancient, but like uh, uh, early uh, Egyptian music uh, work uh, that you translated and you researched, um, did you ever have any... uh, did you ever saw any mentions about dancers of those times? <laughs> yes. Okay, very very good question. The Book of Songs is about songs, but you have reactions to dancing. People dance when they listen to music. And the Book of Songs mentions a few dancers. And if you go on my website and the Dancers Corner, there is a whole series of terms. There is the Dust Band, where people hold hands and dance together, something maybe like the dab cap, we don't know. There is, um, I can't remember now, Ila, I forgot. I mean, you can, you can check the dancer corner and mm-hmm. they're all there. But what's very sad is that the 11th century dictionary from Cairo has a chapter on dance. You turn the page, it's white. Somebody erased it. Because mm. dance is bad. Music is bad enough, dance is even worse. Luckily, the 13th century treatise was based on that 11th century Egyptian treatise. And it has a very large chapter on dance. Mm. 
So it's not lost. Mm-hmm. I, I've not heard from it yet, but it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any specific, I don't know, characteristics or things that were valued in dancers uh, of those times that oh, yeah, maybe this... are not really present today? <laughs> well, it's very important. Uh, again, if you go to the dancer corner, Al-Masoudi has a very tight paragraph of what makes a good dancer. I'm sure you read it. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of it is having a long neck and uh, being very positive, uh, creative on the stage, working very hard, um, having long sideburns, uh, motion of feet should be very symmetric. Uh, your bottom of the dress should be like a bell, so when you turn, it flies with you. It's all it's on the dancer corner, and the, and I had various blogs where I explained them. There are seven different blogs because the passage is very complicated. I had to take each sentence and make a blog out of it. I, I can I can send you that stuff if you want. Yeah, we'll yeah. we'll we'll add links uh, to the show notes so sure, people okay. can uh, can okay. um, check and watch it there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also know that you have uh, several uh, music CDs that you put together in music, uh, some your compositions and some compositions earlier, like that you yeah. did your arrangements, uh, and it was still based on the early... Very early. Egyptian music. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell a little bit more about that? And I know that some of those music uh, tracks, they were specifically supposed to be for dancing. Yes. See, in the old days, they did not dance to songs like the song of Abdullah or song of Kasum. They have specific pieces composed for dancing. You don't sing them, you play them instrumentally and you dance like uh, the one that you danced for me, the Dachlat uh, Lahawalim, and uh, the other one, Rasat Lahawalim. I think you dance on one of the two. These are very specific. Composition for dancers. And then you have the uh, Roman dance, the pomegranate dance. Even Mahmoud Rada did not know about it. It's that old. Mm. It's that old. But a friend of mine had a 78 RPM disc and they had this dance. Uh, very likely 19th century dance. Dashat uh, Hawalim, another 19th, 20th century, and the Hawalim. You mean the music? Or the music the, is because dance, uh, do we know how they really dance to those music? The only one that I've seen uh, dance to is Tahaya Karyoka doing Dashat Lahawalim. But because it's a movie, it's not the whole dance. It's, it's part of a dance. Right. But still very interesting. And a very, very, very small takht. You have violin, flute, lute, kanun, tamburi, that's it. You don't need this 80 goddamn piece orchestra to do to get the sound. But most Western dancers, they have big sound. If you give them kanun and lute and tambourine, oh, it's not big enough sound. But I'll show you Egyptian movies where there is lute and a guy playing drum on a table, not even a drum. <laughs> and it's so beautiful and the dancer is dancing. You don't need this. I don't know why Western dancers want to have this huge sound behind them. But is it really Western dancers? Because a lot of Egyptian dancers in Cairo, they hire in those huge 15-20 yeah, yeah. people orchestras. So, 
I was actually... It's a what, trend, maybe. Yeah, I actually was surprised that in the beginning of our conversation, you were saying that uh, I kind of got an idea that this trend of orchestras, big orchestras in Egyptian music, it's new trend. New trend. It hmm. came in the 20th century, got bigger and bigger, to imitate Western orchestras. Mm-hmm. But Western orchestras have to be big because each instrument does something different. Right. And then the stupidity of our people, with all due respect to the great composers, they have one canoe, one lute, and 20 violins. How stupid can you be? You might as well tell the canoe player to go home. He cannot hear him. The lute player cannot hear him. Just playing. And you have this 20 violin, five cellos, double bass, and a huge army of percussion. There's just no balance, no brain. But you don't have an orchestra. You feel good. You become westernized. There's uh, a lot, I guess, differences between like old music and uh, uh, not old, but like early, early Egyptian music and like modern music as well as dance. And I know that uh, uh, many dancers they are sort of complaining that it's very difficult to dance today to those like early <laughs> Egyptian songs. Even Randa Camel said that to me. He said it's very difficult to dance to the older dancers. And I spent so much energy, so much time, so much money doing my two CDs to recreate the old sound. So I have a canoe that has no levers, no arab, fish skin, beautiful strings. I have a tambourine fish skin, drum fish skin. All the instruments are original animal skin. And my playing technique is very old also. And a friend of mine in Germany said, my God, you, there is a um, transcription from a Polish musician 400 years ago who plays some tour. It's not the canoe, but it's hammered, not plucked. And his playing technique is like mine. So it's a 400, at least 400 year old tradition. Mm-hmm. So you have that. We have the old dances and I got them some from 78 RPM, some from notation. Some from my teachers, and I made these two CDs. Very few dancers dance to them, except you, for example. And, and Lulu in Brazil, she took all my tracks and got 33 Brazilian dancers dancing to them. How did they do it? I don't know. But most Canadian American dancers don't know how to dance to the old music. I don't know why I'm not a dancer. <laughs> but it's too bad because it's good music. Yeah, it's very beautiful, very but it's, beautiful. it has very different feel and yes. vibe from like more modern uh, uh, contemporary ballad and songs. Yes. But it's also very interesting, like, question how they actually danced back then uh, to these kind of songs, because yeah. now we can only do our own interpretation. Exactly. Even Tahir like, probably she just did her own Hello. interpretation yeah. and... Uh, uh, it goes like uh, not only to like ballad dance. If we can even talk about ballad dance really existing back in those times in a, as a ballad dance as a form yeah. what we uh, com- like see today, but even like folklore styles like uh, Moshahat. Today yeah. we are dancing Moshahat, and never a lot of dancers think that's how traditional it is. But in most cases, we are dancing Mahmoud Rada's interpretation, which is a lot of Bali in them. Yes, Very heavy and I yeah. know you, in one of your work and researches, you even 
found a paragraph describing some acrobatic elements possible in Moshahat. Can can you tell yes, a little yes, bit yes. more to the answer? Uh, is the uh, work by Professor Shinoa, he passed away many years ago, and lovely article in French about uh, dance in, in medieval Arabia, including Andalusia. And in Andalusia, they have they had props, they had uh, swords, they had all kind of um, crops or whatever you call them, maybe crop, yeah? Uh, clothing and costume ah, mm-hmm. and stuff they use when they props, dance. Yeah. Props, props, not crops. Stupid me. Props, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it was not the balletic uh, idea that Mahmoud Reda wanted to portray in, in the Moshahat or Andalusian dance. It's wrong. That's not what it is. Mm-hmm. And we don't have and what you call Andalusian washa is the lyrics. They follow the, some Andalusian pattern. But the music is Ottoman. There is no Andalusian music. Andalusian music died in the 13th century. We have no record of the music. Semai is an Ottoman rhythm. There was no Semai rhythm in Andalusia. And they have documents about rhythm in Andalusia. We don't have the music. But we have documents. There was no ten beat to a bar back mm. then. Yeah. That's very interesting because it's one of the biggest, uh, like legends. I don't know things that dancers uh, treat as, as of course, Moshahat uh, is ten, tenet samai rhythm. Like what, what's that? And then imagining Moshahat with a sword <laughs> or yeah. some acrobatic elements. Exactly. It's very difficult today, like because we are so used to seeing completely different things. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. Mm. But this is why you spend years and years doing research, so you can go through the sources. Mm. Performers are not scholars. Right. They're performers. They're creative, but when they pretend to know and give you false information, then we question them. So this is wrong. This is not right. What, in your opinion, as a as a musician, what do you think is the most uh, important thing for dancers to study uh, in music in order to interpret music? Like nicely and fully through their dance uh, dance art. Ideally, they should take lessons, music lessons, in rhythm, and they should use a melody instrument to understand how how the melody functions. You change makam, uh, understand the lyrics. If the song, if the lyrics are very sad, don't smile and ask people to clap. I've seen dancers do this. It's tragic. No? Mm-hmm. So know, know the lyrics, know the language, if you can, or get somebody who knows the language to translate the song for you. Not just a gist of the translation, but get the gist, yes. But before you get the gist, have a word-for-word translation. So you dance, your motion follows word-for-word. Even um, the dancer that Yasmina brought to, two years ago uh, at the Blossom Festival, very famous Egyptian. Dina? Huh? Dina? Dina. She said that. She said, word for word, word for word, you have to know what's happening. So true. Mm-hmm. So play an instrument. 
Also, let's let's pause a little bit here because you use term uh, makam, and I know you you have a lot of articles and explanations. But I'm sure some of the people listening, some of the dancers listening right now to this interview, they kind of like, oh, what's that? It may be a very new term. And for me, for instance, I discovered about that term only after I moved to North America yeah. because in Europe and in European ballet and scene. At least back then, it was not something that was bring uh, anyone was bringing dancers' attention to yeah. makam. So let's talk about what what is makam. <laughs> it's very complex, very complex. Uh, at the basic level, and I mentioned that in my book, the one with Bojenka's photo on it. At the basic level, it's a scale, but that's the very basic. What you do with that scale makes it a makam, meaning the melodic movement. Am I going up in succession? or down in succession. Am I repeating a note or am I jumping a note? This is the melodic movement. So I can make the makam with the melodic movement happy, I can make it sad, the same makam. Mm -hmm. So there is no sad makam and happy makam. It's nonsense. So what you do with it, the melodic movement, the cadences, how we close, how we end the piece, the words, the tempo, the drumming, it's very complex. But to reduce a makam to one emotion is nonsense. And this goes back to ancient Greece, and that found its way into Al-Kindi in the 8th century. And since then, people believe that makam have characters. Very tragic. Even mm -hmm. some musicians are dumb enough to believe that. Even if they start to play, they realize it's not the case. Yeah, makam... Uh topic i remember then i was trying to figure out okay what's that exactly like it's super confusing and even now i sort of understand it. i was like how can really anyone put in words what's what's really his yeah. makam Honestly, but I, get, I, I don't think it's that important to worry about makam it's even it's better to play a music instrument mm -hmm. through it you're going to have some understanding of the makam and how the makam behaves uh, in the sense of the beginning of the makam, the middle, the end, uh, the movement of the makam, up and down, skipping, repeating, all of these are important, and the, the rhythm of the notes. Yeah. So. And I guess this can also help dancers during improvisation, taxim improvisation, yes. if they recognize uh, makam, even without like knowing maybe its name, but just yeah. having that feeling of recognizing makam, it can yeah. help them predict what's going to more or less happen yes, in the yes. improvisation because there are some rules uh, um, influencing, even if it's improvisation, it's still yeah. there are certain rules within each makam of how oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. the instrument can go. Uh, also, the musical form. Most dances now are multi-components. It's not just one song, but the song is made of like four or five different melodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes the same makam, often different makam, different rhythm. Mm -hmm. See? And um, in my book, the, with the Bojenka photo, Egyptian Music Appreciation, I explain how to analyze the music before you start dancing to it. Musical form, understanding, then choreography, then you dance. Mm -hmm. the, the musical form, comes before choreography. Mm -hmm. Understand the sections. For example, from Masoudi Kabir to Masoudi Sagir, for example. Um, 
something like Lilith Hub. Start no Mitratol. Then slow Masmudi. Then Malfouf. Back to Masmudi. Then six eight. This is very Sicilian, very Alexandrian also. And then back to then the first one of us. Etc. Much faster one of us. These are all the sections that you have to know. Then you choreograph. I also feel I recount now, uh, you, you right now just mentioned about another misconception that some dancers, uh, musicians, teachers, they sort of associate this makam is this feeling, this makam is this emotion. This is uh, like another common, I don't know, <laughs> promotion. I don't know even what's that marketing promotion or just misconception. Uh, but I remember there was one more thing that you were sort of, not complaining, but in a way that um, dancers start associating certain instruments with specific movements. Like, for instance, I remember you were complaining that yeah. a lot of dancers only shimmy when you play kanun. kanun. <laughs> yeah, this is such a misconception. And even uh, my dear friend Bassam Bashar, you know Bassam, very, very good musician. He said, this is nonsense. Dance to the melody. The reason the lute has to do a lot of tremolo, is to sustain the sound. The same with the canoe. If I don't do tremolo, the sound will die. But does not mean I do tremolo that you have to shimmy. That's nonsense. Dance to the music, not to the instrument. Mm. So in Egypt, they know, they, they, don't, they don't make that mistake. Here, it's sort of easy. Okay, the flute is sad. You don't know, you don't, don't do what. The canoe is brrr, you do shimmy. The root, the total nonsense. Total nonsense. And what's her name? Uh, Raya Hassan was so upset when she came here to, not last time, but two times ago when I, um, I saw you. She, was, she said, you know, this guy, this guy danced wrong. All this dancer danced to the drum. She danced, when there's only drum, dance to the drum. When there's drum and music, dance to the music and the drum. But if you only dance to the drum, even Randa Kamel said, the bad, the weak dancer dance to the drum because they have, they don't understand the music. Mm. Yeah. I guess it's also easier from terms of like, uh, uh, young dancers or beginning dancers to sort of try to classify or give them some cues yeah. like, oh, these do this, these do this. But then we sometimes forget that it can be a nice learning, uh, tool. But yes. then it goes beyond that. Like yes. We don't stop there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, transforming some tips uh, or, like, uh, uh, sort of like, oh, if you don't know what's on stage, if this is happening, do this. But this is just a little, like, tip or yeah, uh, exactly. suggestion. It's not oh, the, yeah. oh, the limitation. Yeah. Well, I also know that you did quite a lot of work and books uh, specifically uh directing for dancers, uh, yeah. trying to help them uh, navigate this music world and yeah, avoid yeah, their yeah. dance dancing. Uh, can you please uh, share and tell us about your work? Which books you think are the most uh, useful would be for dancers among yeah, your work the, and yeah. where they can find them? The Egyptian Music Appreciation and Practice for Billy Dancer. There's one with Boshenka photo on it. 
and it is in Japanese edition, Portuguese and German. And you are very kind to help me with the Russian. Remember translation? You and Polina. And uh, there is a Greek one also and a Spanish. Mm-hmm. Tanya Zahira did the Spanish. But there's no edition. It costs too much. But in it, I explain 20 different rhythms, not the fourth standard. Egyptian music is extremely rich. And I only mentioned 20 rhythms. There is way more than that. Mm-hmm. But what's known, what people dance to, is 20 different rhythms. And that is Sufi, classical, pop, folk. Then this is a brief chapter of Maqam where I show them as scales. But I said the scale is only the most basic. There is more to it than scale. And I, I show eight Maqams and eight pieces. So it Maqtariya Hilwa is Bayati, for example. It's one way of knowing what the Maqam is. Chapter 3, all the music instruments of Egypt, all photographed and played by yours truly. Some badly, but some okay. <laughs> Fourth chapter, yeah, I cannot do everything. Fourth chapter is on the choreography and the musical form. Analyze the music before you have, you're, you're doing your, your choreography. Yeah. And where can dancers find this book? Uh, on my website. Soon it will be downloaded only because I, I have only 15 copies left. I printed 2,000, and uh, it's Already very gone. <laughs> yeah, well, it took 10 years. It's very slow. But a lot of dancers are not interested to learn. They want to choreography. They want to copy a choreography and dance. They don't want to bother understanding the music. Only the nerds, the really good ones, nerds like me, <laughs> who want to understand the music to become better dancers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, great that... Uh, oh, sorry. It's also a compliment copy. Lulu DVD. All my my tracks, 85 tracks, two CDs and the two CDs of the music appreciation. Together, there are 85 tracks. Most of them are danced by 33 Brazilian dancers. And it's a good uh, tool to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your book, your actual book, also has two complementary CDs to demonstrate everything described in the book. Uh, well, I'm anyway glad that it's still available at least as a download. and that Not uh, yet, but it will be. I need yeah. somebody to help you with the download. Okay, and yeah. uh, for now, I still know that you have some of the copies, like whatever last yeah. copies, dancers can yeah. just message you, contact sure. you, and, sure. and sure. Uh, get from you. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think we went through a like, very nice overview of a lot of... My life. Um, <laughs> it's much more than what we just discussed, but it was a big part, very useful and interesting for dancers. I'm absolutely sure. <laughs> thank you. Thank um, you. And I always uh, typically... Um, summarize every episode with our signature question but i will slightly adapt because typically our question is about belly dance but i'll change it slightly so it uh, relates to you but the question is what makes you fall in love with kanun music so you keep practicing it again and again for so many years (laughs) the sound the sound is so powerful so beautiful you get drunk on it you get tired from it even for a few notes so so rich. And there is a 14th century Cairo manuscript mentioning the canoe, which was bigger than what it is today, more strings. He said, this instrument is magic. Even if an ant 
crawls on the string to give you a nice sound. Mm, that's a nice note <laughs> to yes, sum up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I also like to play for dancers. Uh, you know, I inspire them, but also the dance inspire me, especially when I play taxims. I can do 20 minute, 25 minute taxim nonstop. You know, I play you dance. When I see you dance, I get ideas and I, you inspire me and then I play more taxims. I love to play taxi for dancers, mm-hmm. which is the most difficult thing to do. So you have to know my style, and you have to know when I start, when I stop, what happens in the middle. It's well, complex. but it's probably one of the most exciting parts for dancers too, to, to dance sure. <laughs> to <your> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, do you know the best way to support this project is to share it with your friends. It takes a few seconds, costs you nothing, but it helps a lot to move this project forward and help me to bring more awesome guests on the podcast in the future. You can tell your friend, you can send a message, email, you can screenshot and put a a post on social media, whatever works better for you. But if every one of you will share this episode at least with one more person, it will make a huge difference for this podcast. Thank you for spending your time with us, for your support and love. And until next time, keep shimming, keep dancing, and I will see you soon.